0: be seated. Your bishop, Chip Edgar, I have known for 40 years. He was a kid in my youth group many years ago. He was a leader among his peers. He came back to our community and pastored a church where more faculty at Wheaton College attended than any place else, and he would come to campus once a week and do a a gathering of faculty called Cafe Padre. And he was mentoring me in that group. So here was a guy I once mentored who's mentoring me and now God has him in your community mentoring you. He spoke so fondly of this church and he said high praise about your pastors. And he told me that I needed to count it a privilege to come here, which I do which makes me mindful of the fact that you did not come to hear me. You came to have your life touched by Christ. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I do count it a privilege to be here among these people you love so deeply. And I know what I have to offer them isn't much more than crumbs. This is one morning quickly upon us, quickly it will be past Much will be forgotten. But would you be so kind to take these crumbs, much like your son took the crumbs, the bread, and loaves by the side of the Sea of Galilee, for the feeding of 5,000, so little for so many? And he took them, and he blessed them, and he broke them, and distributed them, and everybody left satisfied. Would you take the crumbs I offer in the power of your Holy Spirit and break them? and bless them, and distribute them, so each person here this morning would hear something that would cause him or her to say, that was meant for me. And in the saying of it, they would be mindful of the fact that you gave that to them as gift, and that you loved them and testified to your love by virtue of that. To that end, I pray, we would meet you this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, The Gospels tell us many biographical things about the life of Jesus, the things he did, the remarkable things he said. Um, We're told of actual geographical places where he visited, and because of this, we can go to the Holy Land and see those places ourselves. We can even learn about some of the things that were on his mind in his days of the Incarnation. In Mark 3, we learn concerning some of the religious leaders in the synagogue, he was grieved at their hardness of heart. We discover in Luke 7, 9, he was amazed when he found a person of such great faith, a centurion who was concerned about the welfare of his servant. In John 11, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, fully knowing in moments later he would raise him from the dead. But he entered into the depths of what it is to be human, that we are people who can often grieve, Experienced sorrow. We're even told something of what he was thinking while he was on the cross when he cried out, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" That he's actually meditating on Psalm 22. We're led into the mind and heart of Christ. It's remarkable to me. But in Isaiah 61, which was just read, we read a text that so attracted Jesus' attention that he chose to preach from it, and it's all recorded in Luke chapter four while he was in the synagogue at Nazareth. If we look at the text in Luke 4, we find he only went one and a half verses and stopped. He read this, "'The spirit of the Lord is upon me "'because the Lord has anointed me "'to bring good news to the afflicted. "'He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, "'to proclaim liberty to captives "'and freedom to prisoners, "'to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord.'" Some have seen it significant that Jesus stopped at that point. There was a division between what he read and what would follow. And basically what follows is gladness instead of mourning. Praise instead of feigning, Rebuilding the ancient ruins. Everlasting joy and justice. It all seems eschatological what's following. And so as a result, Jesus, drawing from this text to show his listeners That the things that he read about are not things to come, they're things that are accessible now, now, in our present state. Uh, Note the following there's going to be good news for the afflicted. There's the binding of the brokenhearted, the brokenhearted could be mended. The proclamation of liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. How might this be? He was in a house of worship, not a prison, before the incarcerated. Did he seem to indicate that maybe we, too, could be captives and prisoners at some level or in some way? Well, let me imagine with you some possible and hopeful applications. I can't help but wonder if, to some degree, each of us are captives and prisoners, to the consequences of the fall and the generational sins that have followed. I can't help but wonder if our imprisonment might be that we're so often blind to our own shortcomings even when we're so aware of the shortcomings of others. I, I was speaking at one of the Oxford University colleges at an even song service. The chaplain afterward, Michael Chantry, asked me if I would do high table with the faculty. I don't know if you've ever been to a high table at Oxford University. It's pretty spectacular. Many of you have seen a high table. If you've seen the Harry Potter movies, that hall where the students at hogwarts are eating is a real place that's christ church it's the most spectacular of the oxford university halls but all the halls have these long tables that run the length of the hall and then elevated and perpendicular to them is a high table where the faculty sit if the students come in and they're eating they eat maybe roast beef The faculty will be eating prime rib if the students are eating steak, the faculty will be eating filet mignon. Everybody comes dressed in their academic gowns, huge paintings of famous benefactors and so on, uh, line the walls of the table the college I preached at. It was John Donne, the poet. It was William Tyndale, the Bible translator. And I think they look down at you just to make sure you're using the right knife, fork, and spoon while you're eating <laughs> It begins with a Latin prayer, the wine pours freely, and you could cut the pretense with a knife. If you don't take yourself too seriously, it's kind of fun. But a lot of people are tempted to take themselves pretty seriously. The chaplain introduced me. I sat down after the Latin prayer, and the woman sitting across from me who taught history there said, So Jerry, why are you a Christian? I thought she was asking because maybe she was interested. Somebody told me after the meal they thought she was asking because she wanted to make me the entertainment for that night's dinner. We could have entered into a philosophical, theological discussion. We could have argued and ended that meal with great indigestion. But I didn't come to faith because somebody sat and argued me into the kingdom. And I told this woman, I became a Christian because I was aware of brokenness in my life. I was aware of failure. I was aware of the things the Bible calls sin. I believe in the high ideal of love, but I was aware there were times when I had sharp words with people I said I loved most in this world. I was aware of justice and my desire to hold that as a high ideal, but there were times when I was not so fair an understanding of another person. And I was so devastated by those things that when I heard the God of the universe loved me unconditionally and forgave me of all of that, I took to it like a duck to water. She looked at me and she said, well, I can appreciate that, but that's just not my issue. I said, really? I think I understand what you're saying because, you see, I didn't become a Christian until I was in my first year of college, and and I didn't become perfect overnight. That took two or three weeks before that happened. (laughs) And the whole faculty busted up in laughter like you did, and I looked at this woman, and I said, your laughter just betrayed you. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you and I had just met, so you couldn't know the specifics in my life that made that statement nonsense but you laughed at the nonsensical nature of it so either your read of history or your read of your own heart tells you nobody has it together she said you got me I said I'm not interested in getting anybody but let me ask you since you are aware of this brokenness in your own life what gets you by she said well I have faith in humanity I said, well, that's interesting. I'm interested in anything that's going to help me. Let me ask you about your faith in humanity. Have you ever been wounded by another human being before? She said, of course. I said, have you ever wounded another human being before? She said, I suppose so. She's a little softer on herself. I said, how does this faith in humanity work where we live in a world where we have wounded others and we've been wounded by others? Just then, the man sitting next to her who taught French there, said, How does it work for Christians? And we talked about themes of grace. Now, I don't want you to think I'm clever enough to have come up with something like that on my own. I think when we get ourselves in those situations, the Holy Spirit is there to help us. And I'm grateful for what happened and transpired there. But the issue is it demonstrates the fact that we are all in a situation where we live beneath our own aspirations and desires. There's a sense where we're the ones imprisoned, and we need to have preached to us as captives that we could be released and there could be liberty. How does it work? I know when I get to 1 John 1.9, at the end of my day, I I, I do my prayers and I I pray my prayers of confession. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek word there for confess is homilagao from which a seminarian taking courses in homiletics on preaching studies. Why do we use that word for homiletics? Because it means to say the same thing. When I come to my prayers of confession, I'm supposed to say the things that God already knows about me, but maybe I haven't been aware of that day. I don't know about you, but when I go through the Rolodex of the things I need to confess that day, I often forget by the end of the day. I think I did pretty well today, actually. But the verse that helps guide me through my confessions is 1 Corinthians thirteen five. If we confess, excuse me, it says, uh, perfect love cast no, nope, I'm going through the Rolodex of verses right now. <laughs> love does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. I can look back over my day and I can say, were there any moments where I was provoked? That's a symptom that I was probably self-seeking in my love and not concerned about the other person. And consequently, as a result, I can remember those things. And it brings me to the place of self-awareness where I lay before God. Father, I am still trapped in in the prison of bad attitudes, impatience, Short temper, I need you to heal me. I need you to heal me. I frequently see that all too often I struggle repeatedly with the same kinds of lapses. I weary of it and wonder if I'm not one of these captives to whom Jesus is preaching liberty and hope. But how might that be? How might I find freedom? Imagine with me a little further. I want to use an analogy. I would like to suggest to you that our lives are like an old phonograph record. Do you guys even still remember what phonograph records were? You'd put the record on the record player. You'd put the needle in the grooves, and it would begin to play its themes. Invariably, those records would get scratched. And what would the records do after they were scratched? They would skip. They would go round, go round around. They'd be stuck in that place. Developmentally, we may be doing fine in a thousand places, but I guess most of us probably have three to five scratches in our record that are deep enough, and we keep recycling in those places. Psychologists call the phenomenon repetition in search of mastery. We want to get past that developmental stuck place to move on to better maturity. But how do we do it? It's interesting that we often look for surrogates, it's, if you get cut off on the road and you honk the horn, that's one thing. But if 20 miles down the road you're still tailgating that person honking your horn, it's not about them cutting you off. You're projecting on that. You go to work, they hire somebody new. You don't know the person, but you don't like them. Somebody says, why don't you like them? You don't even know them. And we say bad chemistry. Bad chemistry may be a place where our record has been scratched deeply. And is there, How about Marriage where it's the same thing that keeps coming up in the marriage year after year. Why is it that the same things might bother us? Because somehow that other person's become a surrogate and we take out on them the person who scratched our record years before. And the consequence of this being scratched is we tend to drift towards anesthetizing behaviors. The anesthetizing behaviors don't get us better if they just get us by temporarily the obvious ones alcohol addiction sexual addiction drug addiction workaholism um, you can have less obvious ones um, I, I know a, a hell's angel type people i've worked with enough of them not that many but enough of them to see a common pattern everyone underneath that hard veneer of toughness had a marshmallow heart everyone i met It became a kind of anesthetizing behavior I know a man who creates chaos in his world over there, so people will be deflected to look at that chaos, and they don't look at the chaos in his own heart. These anesthetizing behaviors get us by, but as we develop and gain convictions, we generally find that the anesthetizing behavior and our convictions are in conflict. We find ourselves in Romans 7, the very thing I desire to do, I don't do, and the thing that I want to do, I don't do. Who's going to set me free from all these things? Paul said Jesus will, but how? How does he set us free? And why do we keep going back to these things over and over again rather than turning to him? I believe it's because our wounds are deeper than our convictions. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. Rather than trusting him to heal us, we want to maintain management of these things ourselves. We are imprisoned. And Christ comes to preach release to the captives. How's it work? Well, I think I can illustrate it maybe through a story. This is a true story. In all my years of working with people, it's the third worst story I ever heard. It's a true story. It's a young boy, not my story, but this young boy, he's six years old when his mother dies giving birth to a younger brother. I think he's going to have some abandonment issues. A lot of times, psychologists tell us if we have deep trauma, When we're young, before 12, before we're kind of awakening to some sort of psychological stability, we begin to play that out in our life. I think think this young boy was a particularly uh, admirable young boy, but he was raised in a large family, and it was an abusive family. I don't think they were sexually abusive, but they were physically and emotionally abusive, and when he's 17 years old, he's kicked out and he's on his own, totally on his own. He gets a job, he is hungry, and he's hardworking, and he's clever. And he moves up the ladder at his place of employment, and when he reaches a top level, somebody filed a sexual harassment charge against him at work, and he went to prison for seven years. I'm convinced he was innocent. My college roommate, one of them, murdered his wife on their sixth anniversary, slit her throat. He went to prison for three and a half years. This guy goes to prison for seven for trumped-up charges. Does he have scratches on his record? Boatloads of them. But he gets better. And you know the story. I just told you Joseph's story in the Bible. His mother, Rachel, dies giving birth to his younger brother, Benjamin. He's raised in a horribly abusive family. Why were the brothers so abusive to him? Because They were the unloved sons of their father, Jacob, and he was the loved son. If anybody should have known better, it should have been Jacob because he was the unloved son of his father, Isaac. And the sins of the parents are visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. And as Richard Rohr says, pain not transformed is transferred. Joseph is horribly treated by his brothers, kicked out of the family, sold into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's house. He's a circumspect and respectable guy working hard and innocent. He's charged with things he never did, and he goes to prison for seven years. When finally he's elevated second to Pharaoh in Egypt, he's given the priest's wife or daughter for a wife, and he has two children by her, and what he names the children is the route to getting out of this prison. The route that Jesus ultimately supplies us in scripture. The first son's name is Manasseh. I'm going to ask for some participation right now. Does anybody know what Manasseh means? Did anybody in here ever know what Manasseh meant? (laughs) Ever. Usually somebody raises their hand and I say, if you don't know now, but you're used to what happened, they say, well, I forgot. And I go, that's what it means. Manasseh means I forgot. I forgot. And Joseph says, I named him Manasseh because the Lord allowed me to forget what happened in my father's house. He doesn't forget the details. He gives the brothers banquet, seats them in chronological order. He remembers details when he asks them questions about their father. When he says, I forget, it means that he was able to forgive to the forget place. C.S. Lewis says everybody thinks forgiveness is a great idea until they have somebody to forgive. He also said when Jesus said you've got to forgive not just seven times, but 70 times seven, maybe it takes 490 times to get past one stuck place in the record. You have a deep thing, a scratch in your record. You're going a long drive. You've got a couple hours ahead of you, and your mind starts to drift into those places where the pain is. You go to turn on the radio to anesthetize with sound. Sit with it. You start to remember. The anger starts to come. The tears start to come. The grieving, because all good forgiveness should be accompanied with a level of grief. The grieving comes, and maybe after two hours, prayerfully, you get to the place where you're able to let go. You forgive. Two weeks later, it comes up again, and you go through the whole process, and it takes two hours. A couple weeks later, it takes two hours again. A couple weeks later, two hours again. A couple weeks later, an hour and 45 minutes. A couple weeks later, an hour and a half. A couple weeks later, 45 minutes. A couple weeks later, three hours. You had a relapse. But eventually, the memory and the forgiveness come simultaneously, and at that moment, Manasseh has been born. You are free. He has a second son. His name is Ephraim, and it means be fruitful. Get out of the prison because God has work for you to do. Be fruitful in his kingdom ministry. There are people in your world who need to be encouraged, lifted up, maybe shared the gospel with those people, maybe helped out in a crisis situation. God wants to use you because you matter, and your empathy will be greater if you've gone through the Manasseh process. At the end of this text in Isaiah... It says, we will discover through this process that we will be given a double portion of his grace. A double portion, the portion whereby we encounter the grace of Christ in our own story, and we encounter the operations of Christ in the life that he's calling us to in the Ephraim part of life. I I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. We were poor. I would see my fellow schoolmates in elementary school going to the school cafeteria, and I always wondered, what was it like to eat in the school cafeteria? It was too much. It was 31 cents. It was prohibited for us. My mom always gave us a lunch, a, a sandwich, a couple cookies, and a piece of fruit. But I wanted to go to cafeteria, and one day, to my complete surprise, she gave me the 31 cents, and I went into the cafeteria, my first thought, I couldn't have described it like this then, but these were my exact sentiments. Being unfamiliar with the sociological protocols of elementary school cafeteria life, would I do something stupid and the other kids would make fun of me? I watched with intensity the girl in front of me. She gave the lady at the register her 31 cents. I did the same. She grabbed her fiberglass tray. I did as she did. She put her cutlery on it. I did as she did. She took it to that chrome roll bar counter. Do you remember that? And the first item on the menu string beans. I hate string beans. (laughs) And I thought this cafeteria life maybe is cracked up as high as I thought it would be, and apparently this girl didn't like them either. So she said to the cafeteria lady, "Do you remember her? She was kind of heavy-set woman with gray hair and a hairnet. She had a white outfit with a white apron with smudge marks all over it. She was the ubiquitous cafeteria lady that worked in every elementary school cafeteria in the world." The girl said to her, "I'll have a small portion of those, please. I never heard the word before." She gives a big spoon with holes in it, digs down into a big pot, pulls out three string beans and put them in a bowl. I said, wow. I said to the lady, I'll have a small portion of those too, please. She did the same for me. I went down the line and put the other things on my tray. I get to the end, and what was at the end of the cafeteria line? Desserts. And I saw what I thought were the most economically cut pieces of chocolate cake I'd ever seen. (laughs) And I wondered if this word had other applications. So I said to the cafeteria lady, I'll have a large portion of that, please. And she cut me the biggest piece of chocolate cake I'd ever seen in my life. And I thought, that is a good word. (laughs) The psalmist says in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but thee and besides thee? I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This text says there's something whereby we are incarcerated as long as we're letting the sins of the past have dominance in our life rather than discovering the operations of grace to set us free that we might have a larger portion of him and a larger portion of our participation of his work in this world.